together with you guys. I'm excited to look, if you will, to John's gospel. Um, we're going kick it, to kick it right off and look to John's gospel. Um, when Jerry and I were talking about this and we were discussing, where's Jerry? He's down there. Hey, Jerry. We were discussing what to teach. Last year, we went to Colossians. And just in that, didn't we do Colossians last year? Okay, good. Just in that, uh, that idea, we spend on our Wednesday night time, we spend so much time, you know, in Genesis and the Old Testament. And so for this period, we wanted to do something from the New Testament and look at it together. And so did Colossians last year, a good book, Apostle Paul. Now we're going to go and we're going to do John, but it's going to be really hard to do John in six weeks. And I would say really impossible. Um, but we're going to look at particularly John 13 through 17. John 13 through 17. Now, I'm not doing that this morning. This morning, I'm going to give you an introduction because I don't like just picking up in John 13, 1 and saying, turn there and now we're going to talk. I want us to get a feel for where we are and what we're doing. So we built in this introduction. But John 13 through 17 is an in interesting section because what most people don't realize when you read John is that the triumphant or triumphal entry into Jerusalem that happens the Sunday before the death of Christ on Friday, right? That triumphal entry happens in John chapter 12. So almost half of the book of John is after the triumphal entry, right? So he's all he's dealing with that. And then you have, uh, really, in John 13, you're just dealing with the night that Jesus meets with his disciples, Passover, the night that he was betrayed, the night before his death. So John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is that time that Jesus is with his disciples the night that he would be betrayed, the day, the night before his death. So just that one night is recorded for us there. And so what we'll do over the next few weeks is look at that evening together, really, starting with Jesus washing his disciples' feet and then beginning and going through his teaching about the Holy Spirit and how uh, the necessity of the Spirit and what he is and who, who uh, Christ is and what he's come to do. And then as he closes it out with that incredible John 17, that prayer where he prays for his disciples and he prays for those who would follow after or believe because of the testimony of his disciples, which is us. And so we kind of see that even. That's what we'll be looking through. What I wanted to do this morning is just kind of give us an introduction of John's gospel and, and, and look at it. So if you'll do that, uh, let's look to John chapter 1. Let's look there. And I may, I may have you flipping around so y'all get used to John. Um, does anybody know, by the way, uh, who wrote most of the New Testament? Does anybody know? That's a great guess, and all of y'all are exactly wrong. Um, you would think that, right? Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. So if you think about that, there's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them that we know for sure. Uh, and so you think Paul wrote the most. But percentage-wise, words-wise, y'all have another guess? Wrong again. <laughs> I love it. This is my favorite time right here. I was hoping it worked out this way. Actually, Luke wrote the most of the New Testament. 
percentage-wise or words-wise. Luke's gospel is the longest of, uh, second longest of the gospels, but then uh, also you add in the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts together, word-wise, is, is, makes up 27.5% of the New Testament. John, I mean Paul, excuse me, makes up 23.5%. Now, I will say, if you want to make the argument to me that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is, doesn't have an author contributed to it. Throughout history, many have believed Paul wrote it because it falls in line. I think there's two possibilities I think that, that are legitimate. Uh, there may be others. We don't have to know, by the way. But I think there's two possibilities, Paul being likely, but also someone like an Apollos or someone like that who followed closely with Paul because the book of Hebrews follows the same type of logic, reasoning, and wording that Paul uses so often. Um, but if you add Hebrews to Paul, some of you would be right that Paul wrote the most. It would put him just above Luke. But Luke, percentage-wise, with the books we know he wrote in Luke and Acts, wrote 27.5, Paul 23.5, and then John comes in third. John has five books, 20% of the New Testament is written by the Apostle John. We know the two larger ones, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and then you add in his three letters, uh, his three letters. And so you see John, and most of us are familiar with John. Whenever I uh, first like surrendered into the ministry, the first thing I did was I grabbed a, a commentary that my dad had on the shelf of John's Gospel, and I took John, the Bible, and I opened it up and I read through the entire thing. I read through John's gospel about three or four times and then I would read that commentary going along with it as I did it. It was where I dove in. And if, if you're familiar with uh, or, or have dealt much with where to start reading the Bible and you talk to someone about where should they begin reading it, oftentimes we say the book of John. It's very easy to understand. It has a very clear purpose and it is trying to do exactly what we want people to do, and that is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, before we look at John 1, flip with me, if you will, over to John chapter 20, and we'll begin with the end to show what John's doing. John is very clear and precise in, in many ways, and so what he's doing is found in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. We need always to let the authors that are writing the books tell us what they're trying to accomplish, right? And that helps us interpret what they're trying to do. And so John says toward the end of his, of his, uh, his gospel here, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In other words, John did not record every single thing Jesus did in this gospel. There are other things he did. He did many other signs, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life. That's why he wrote it. So if you're interpreting John's gospel then, you should, at every point, in every story, what is this teaching me about Jesus being the Son of God, the Christ, and how can his, what is it teaching me about life and how to find that life in him? That becomes John's guiding principle, his purpose in everything. 
And so if we begin with that, let's go back then to John chapter 1. One of the most beautifully written passages in all of Scripture is the prologue of John's gospel. Prologue, that sounded real country. It sounded, my red bank came out. The prologue of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This section here sets itself up as basically the outline of what John is going to do. We saw the purpose, right? We saw the purpose of John's gospel. Now we'll see how John is going to get to that purpose here. And John writes in such a way as to not give us the thesis statement. I know when I was in school, uh, our, my professors always wanted me to put my, my thesis statement at the very beginning. Here's what I'm arguing. And John does not do it that way. He basically is going to give his prologue, and at the end he's going to say, this is what I was doing all the way throughout. And so John is doing that here when he begins. And he wants us to understand who this Christ is. I mean, in some sense, this Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God, becomes the very point of all of this. We know John is the one of the, gospel, one of the uh, apostles in tradition that did not uh, was not martyred for the faith. It did not mean he wasn't suffered or persecuted. In fact, the story is that John settled in Ephesus, taught there. He was arrested there. Um, we don't know any of this other than through history and, and whether it's verifiable. Many in history believe there was an incident in Ephesus where he was, he was uh, sought to be martyred. They took him to uh, uh, the public to put him to death. And they were going to dip him into a boiling pot of oil. And when they dipped him in, he did not die and he was not injured. And so he came out. They didn't know what to do with him then. So they cast him out to Patmos, which was an island where they did mining. And basically slaves worked there and prisoners worked there. And so he was sent to Patmos. We do know that he was sent to Patmos. We do know he was exiled there for Revelation tells us that. And we do know that that's where the Lord met with him. So... Whatever history may teach us, that's what uh, we, we know here about John, is that he is writing this, and it's pretty much, anybody, anybody nowadays is going to dispute anything the Bible says, so if you were to Google something, and I don't necessarily recommend that, but if you were to Google something about John, many people would try to make arguments that John didn't write this book, or he didn't do that, and there's no reason to believe he wrote anything or in the New Testament. They'll make those arguments. There's really no reason for us to believe he didn't. All of, human, all of uh, Christian history and testimony has pointed toward John, and there are so many reasons internally in this book to believe John wrote it that we should, I think, hold up. I have yet to find an argument that goes against the Word of God and denies the supernatural nature of God's Word and denies what God's Word says that really holds any water when it's pressed against God's Word. And so John writing this is setting out with his purpose, probably writing this toward the end of the, uh, the, end of the first century. John also, by the way, uh, one of the reasons why it's maybe easy to say, for some to say he didn't write it, because he never refers to himself as the author. Uh, he does, as we see, refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, over and over again, and this was common back in those days, to, to not refer to you by name, but to, to refer to you by the one who was loved by this, this main character, if you will. So it, that's, you see, uh, as references to the author, John himself, in chapter 13, chapter 19, 20, and 21, the disciple whom Jesus loved. When John begins this, 
he begins this, I think, his begins his, his gospel in a very powerful way, in a very intentional way. He says here in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Now, have we ever heard those three words before? All right, we have. Do y'all know where? This is not a trick question. Y'all got the Paul, John, and Luke thing all wrong. But I'm hoping you get this one right. Where have we heard in the beginning before? Genesis 1, 1. I believe John is being absolutely intentional here. In order for him to, to put Jesus in the context of who he is and what he's done for us, it's not, it's not sufficient enough for John just to start fresh here in his gospel. He has to take us back to the very beginning. So the beginning of John's gospel begins exactly like Genesis 1 does. It begins exactly there. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Here John is trying to take us back to say, let's put Jesus in the context of where he fits. Let's put him in the origin of where he should be. And he is in the beginning. It ties Jesus back to the Old Testament. Ultimately, the Old Testament is full of... Uh, prophecies about the Christ, the one who would come, the Messiah. This one who would come will be, this, will be God. He will come with power. He will come as the king of glory. We see all of those. And so in order for John to fulfill his purpose, he's got to place Jesus in the context of the Old Testament to say, this is the one who is the king of glory. This is the one who is the, the son of who is going to come, and you have to kiss his ring, as Psalm chapter 2 says. This is the one that's going to break the nations. This is the one who's going to redeem his people. This is, even as he writes this, and we'll see through, this is the one who Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. When you read, when you read John's gospel in John chapter 12, he says, Isaiah saw his glory, and it's referring there to Isaiah chapter 6 with the passage, Isaiah saw his glory and believed, right? And so this is the one who Isaiah saw on the throne. This is the one who Abraham saw and rejoiced at his day. Abraham, who considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of any thing in this world, he saw Jesus' day and he rejoiced. This is the one Abraham saw. This is the one Moses was testifying to. And so for John to say in the beginning, he's placing Jesus in the context of all that is in the Old Testament, all that is there. Here's where he fits. He fits in this category. He fits in this place. This is where he started, if you will, if you can put a start on him, because ultimately you can't. And that's why in the beginning works. Is because just like we don't date the beginning of God, he always was, he's eternal, what John is saying is so is Jesus in the beginning. He was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of the Word is the Greek word logos, right? And so why does John use this Greek word logos to describe Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This phrase, it, it's, it's hard to believe, this is what one commentator said, it's hard to believe a deeper issue could have been addressed with greater simplicity. To talk about the eternality of Jesus, to talk about his equality with God, to talk about his essence, his essential character being the same, 
all three of those are wrapped up in this one sentence. And he chooses this one sentence to place Jesus there in the beginning, equal, eternal, co-eternal with God, co-equal with God, and in the same essence as God. He is God. And so he puts all of that into this one little simple sentence. Now, that is a big thing to describe, right? Try doing that to a six-year-old. You know, how's Jesus God? And sit there and try to do that. And you just hope by some point they get a little bit of snippet of the truth. You don't say any heresy, and hopefully they fall asleep and don't ask any more questions. That's how it works. And that's exactly what, but John takes this one simple sentence, and, and in this one simple sentence, he states the, the uh, eternality, equality, and essence of Christ and how he is God himself in this one way, and puts him in the context of the Old Testament. He uses word to do this, because how does Genesis begin? In the beginning, God did what? Created. And how did God create? He spoke. He gave his word, and his word created. Through this word, it was created. And so here he says that word is Christ Jesus himself. That word is Christ Jesus himself. In fact, look at what he goes on to say. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he was there at creation. He was a part of it. He was carrying it out. And as we see, sometimes the Trinity uh, is described as God gives the decree Jesus carries it out and the Spirit makes it, applies it to, right? And so here you're even seeing that in this process. You're even seeing that in this process. In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus, by John's guiding here, we see his, we see his uh, eternality. By the way, let's, let's look at a couple of these things. Turn with me over to, flip with me to John chapter 8. I keep saying flip, flip over. Does everybody understand what that means? That's like when you tell somebody to mash the button on the, on the um, mash the button. You know what I'm saying? Mash the button on the, on the microwave there. Mash the, mash the start button. Flip over, you know, we'll get it. John chapter 8, you see this in verse 58. Listen, when Jesus starts to make an argument with the Pharisees on this eternality. What he's doing here is he's placing himself before. He's placing himself before. Before creation, before all these things. And so ultimately, who was the father of the Jewish nation? It was Abraham, right? And so he's saying, I was even before that. Because he's telling to Abraham, he's telling these disciples who they claim Abraham as their father, uh, the Pharisees claim Abraham as a father. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad, he says in verse 56. He rejoiced he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And then he goes down to verse 58. Jesus said to them, of course they go, you're not even 50 years old and you have, you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. Y'all remember the I am statement, right? The I am statement in the Greek is ego emi. Why is that important? Because in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses says, who should I say is sending me? He says, I am who I am is sending you. That Yahweh phrase, right? So that's the name of God. God reveals his name 
to Moses. And in some way, we know that when you know somebody's name, you know where they're from, you know who they are, you know all these other things about them. And God is saying, I'm going to give you my name, but my name does not tie me to any place, any person or anything. I am who I am. And so ultimately, he says, you tell him I am who I am, essentially. Not one that you can tie down, not one that you can describe, not one that you can fit. I am who I am. And so that Yahweh phrase becomes the name of God. It's a statement of eternality. It's a statement of no beginning and no end. It's a statement of all of these things. It becomes the name of God. Well, what happens then is a few years before the New Testament comes about, before Jesus comes, there was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Septuagint meaning 70, so 70 scholars came together and translated the the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And what's often used in the New Testament is that Septuagint, right? They refer to it. So in Exodus 3.14, what those scholars came up with to say I am is ego emi. That's what God says my name is. So in Exodus 3.14, in the Septuagint, when they translate it into Greek, who should I say is sending me, sending me? Ego ami is sending me. And so God's name is Ego ami, right? And so when Jesus comes here and he's writing this, he says, before Abraham was Ego ami, I am. He's directly tying himself back to the name of God, the eternality, the existence, all of those things, Jesus and that's me. They knew exactly what he was doing because they picked up rocks to stone him with because this was blasphemous. But Jesus is making that claim. John is going to show that throughout, that Jesus puts himself in the history and the context of the Old Testament, and he claims to be God. He claims to be God. But it's not just that word puts him in context of the Old Testament, thoroughly biblical usage, but word is also genius here for John for another reason. The word, or logos, was used in the Greek. It was used in the Greek to... uh, Consider what uh, uh, understanding of reason, in other words. Um, The Greeks use it as the ultimate reason, this indescribable thing, but it's reason. And for the Greeks, reason ruled the world. You know, so if you're thinking of rationality, reason, reason ruled the world. And so it was reason that would give meaning and ultimate meaning to the universe. Lagos is the word they used. So in this one word, John takes logos, and for those who were biblical, if you will, he's putting it in context to say, this one, Jesus, who has come, is the word, where we see God speak, we see his truth, we see all of that. For those who were the Greeks who may be reading this, this one who has come is the ultimate reason. He is the one who's in control. He is the one who dominates and rules and reigns. So in this use of the word logos, John pulls in both a thoroughly biblical understanding and a secular reason understanding to say this one Jesus is the one who has ultimate rules and reigns over all things. This is him. And so he does this and uses this phrase. Again, this simple little line of John is ingenious of how in this one little phrase he could bring in so much of who Christ is and describe him in such a way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As I said before, proving that Jesus was the Son of God, John is going to, this this prologue kind of sets us up for what's coming. John's gospel is built 
throughout with a structure. In some way, a structure of sevens, if you will. And Jesus is going to refer to himself. We saw how he said it with Abraham, but he's going to refer to himself as I am in many different ways. In fact, there are seven I am statements in John's gospel, each one of them speaking to the deity of Christ and what Christ has come to do. The seven I am statements then is how John builds his gospel. We'll see how he does this. To prove the deity of Christ, he's going to build his gospel. So in John, we see the first one, John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life, right? I'm the one who's come down from heaven to sustain you, in other words. I am. That I am ties him to God. I ego a me, the bread of life. Speaks of who he is and what he's come to do. He says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. In John chapter, uh, again in John chapter 10, just a few verses later, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 15, I am the true vine. John builds his gospel then, if you will, on these I am statements. He's building it all the way throughout. These are used to structure what John is trying to prove. If he's trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, right, and he is the Christ, then over and over again, he's, Jesus is saying, I am, ego a me, tying and linking himself back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God gives his name. And then he says, here's what I have come to do. I've come to be the bread of life. I've come to be the door so the sheep can enter in. I've come to be the good shepherd who calls his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and they follow. I am the true vine. You get in, you abide in me. You have life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. All of these I am statements is how John is going to structure his gospel. How he's going to structure his gospel. These seven, seven I am statements. And in doing this, we can see that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And ultimately what we know then is we can know God, right? We can know him because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We can, we can know that he's, he's never changed. God is, not only is Jesus God, but God is like Jesus. And so we can learn who he is in his own character and way. And that ultimately Jesus is enough because he is God. We see his deity laid out. But not only do we see his deity, then we also see his power. He says this there. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. We not only see the deity of Christ, we see his power. Everything that was made was made by him, right? So he is over creation. He's over creation. He's not a subset of it. He is over it. He is the creator himself, so he can speak into it and darkness cannot overcome him he is more powerful he is more powerful than darkness it cannot overcome him so if we see those seven i am statements in john then we can also see uh, a, another group of seven that kind of works throughout john's gospel you have the seven i am statements and then you have the seven signs or the seven miracles if you will and so john's gospel built on those seven i am's and also seven signs. Those seven signs work throughout for a purpose. The first one is the changing of the water into wine in John chapter 2. 
The second one, he says, is that temple cleansing. This is a sign for you of what he has come to do at the end of John chapter 2. The nobleman's son being healed in John chapter 4 is a sign as they believe. The healing of the lame man in John chapter 5. The feeding of the multitudes or the 5,000 in John chapter 6. The healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. These are all miracles or signs that testify to who God is, that show his power. Jesus is, has all power over creation. He's not only equal with God, he I am, and here's what he's come to do. He, he has all power over all of creation. He can take water and make it into wine if he wishes. He has power over God's worship. He can cast anybody and turn the temple upside down and say, get out, because he speaks to that. He has power over that. He has power over all illness. The lime, the lame, lime, the limes taste better than lemons. But the lame can walk again and the blind can see. And you see that with the blind man. He has power over whatever affirmity you may have. He speaks to that. And then ultimately the climax of all of it is he can look at death in the face and say, you're done. And he calls Lazarus to come back to life. He calls Lazarus to come back to life. And that's no small thing because death has entered in as a conviction, as a charge conviction of sin. Here is the penalty for the wages of sin is death. Since you sinned, you shall surely die, right? And so death is coming to everybody. Dust from dust you came to dust you shall return. Death is coming to all. So the only one who could reverse that charge, because who gave that charge? Who gave that curse of death? Who, who, who made that ruling? God himself in Genesis chapter 3. And the only one who could reverse it is God himself. Is God himself. So much so that whenever they raise Lazarus from the dead, what do they try to do? Kill Lazarus. Because he becomes a testimony of what Jesus has done, Right? Let's put him to death to show we overrule his ruling. We are the ones that have death. We're the ones that have this choice. Jesus does it, but they can't. Jesus is the one who holds that power. So in John's gospel, he's going to show not only the deity of Christ, but the power of Christ. He's giving his person and his work. That's a phrase that's important to us in Christianity. Uh, the person and work of Christ. It's not just important that Jesus is God. That's his person. That's who he is, right? It's not just important that. It's also important of what he has done for us. For if God just came to earth and sat here, nothing really would have been accomplished for us, right? He had to come and do something. And so he not only, but in the same way, he couldn't have come and died and not been God and it meant anything for us, right? Because if he's not God, then it can't be applied for us. He's not a sufficient sacrifice. He's not enough. So we have to know who Jesus is, his person, and what he has done, his work. Those two things are what go together for us. And that's how we are saved, by believing in the person, who he is, and the work, what he has done for us, right? That's how we're saved. Romans chapter 10, you know, uh, anyone who uh, confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, who he is, and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what he has done, died and rose again, then you shall be saved. 
And so in order for someone to be saved, I don't care where you are, I don't care what country you live in, I don't care how dark that may be, in order for someone in the scriptures to profess salvation, you have to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what John is making clear. John wants to not only say Jesus is the Son of God, but you can have life in him. His, his theme throughout is this idea of believe, right? You can believe, just believe these things. So John's whole message in here is that you can believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And John structures his whole gospel on this with seven I am statements. The person, this is who he is. Seven statements or signs. This is what he's come to do. This is what he's come to do in his power, his work on our behalf, conquering not only all that has been made wrong with the lameness and the affirmities and blindness, but also at the end, conquering death itself. Conquering death itself. John's prologue lays this out again through this kind of statement. Then he goes, then he goes to verse 6. Now, you, you may think this is out of, this comes out of nowhere, but he says there's a man sent from God whose name was John. That's not John that's writing, that's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In that passage, hopefully you heard three times he uses that phrase witness. This is a key phrase throughout John's gospel. This idea of witness is the idea of what John's come to do. He's coming to testify to who Christ is and what he's done. Do y'all know how many witnesses it would take to charge somebody and make them guilty before a court? In the New, Te in the New Te Old Testament, y'all know? Two, right? It's two witnesses. You have two witnesses, and they come and they testify, you're guilty. John is saying, I've come to be a witness. John the Baptist has come to be a witness. In fact, many make the argument and I think there's some validity to it that throughout John's gospel, there are seven witnesses. So if you can think of seven I am statements, seven uh, signs, seven witnesses to all of this. Those witnesses, as many thought through them, you can see several times that how they come. John the Baptist being the first one. Nathaniel in chapter 1 who witnesses to Christ and says, this is the one who has come. You have Peter in chapter 6. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You have him. You have Jesus in chapter 10 who witnesses, I, the, I and the Father are one. You have uh, Martha. Remember, in chapter 11, you are the son of God. You are the Christ, you know, after, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. You have Thomas who, after he doubted for that moment, you have Thomas who says, you are the Christ, after he puts his finger in his side. And finally, you have John himself saying, this is why I have written my whole book. But I would make an argument, as some say there's seven witnesses, I'd make an argument that there's, there's actually more than that here. Because not only does he testify to John the Baptist, he also testifies uh, in chapter 5, he speaks of the scriptures testifying. All of the Old Testament is bearing witness to him. If you look, I've quoted this, especially on Wednesday night many times in chapter 5, verse 45. Do not think that I come to accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses himself was a witness to Christ. The first five books of the Old Testament is bearing witness about Jesus. 
bearing witness. We talk about this on Wednesday night all the time when we're going through Genesis. They're all bearing witness about Christ Jesus himself. Even Jesus is going to say, Abraham is rejoicing in my day. He was longing for me. The scriptures bear witness. Moses bear witness. Abraham bears witness. And then throughout, you see other witnesses come up. And how does John the Baptist begin this gospel there after the prologue? The next day, he saw Jesus coming. Speaking of John, he saw Jesus coming toward him and verse 29 of chapter 1, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This statement, the Lamb of God, is speaking directly to the witness of the Passover. Exodus, whenever that Passover comes and that lamb that was sacrificed, this is the one. All of the sacrificial system is pointing us to this one. Jesus becomes this one that they're saying everything is pointing us to this one who has come. This is the Lord of glory. This is the witness. Uh, this is, excuse me, the, the sacrifice on his behalf. John says that's what we're trying to do. These, these I am statements, these signs, these witnesses that have come, all are there. And he says, the true light gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Part of John's laying out of this is this statement that he came into his own and his own people did not receive him. Throughout John's gospel, there are countless accusations leveled at Jesus. He's just a Galilean. He's just a Nazarene. Over and over again, they discredit him. The Jews discredit him and say he's not enough. They say he's breaking the Sabbath. They say he's blaspheming. They say he's deceiving the people. He's demon-possessed. They tell, say he's got an illegitimate birth himself. They call him a Samaritan, which was the ultimate of insults in chapter 8. He's a sinner. He's got madness. He's a criminal. He's a royal pretender, a threat, political threat. All the way throughout, it shows how he came to his own and his own people rejected him. Over and over again with the references, he comes to his own and his own people reject him. But that does not deter him. It does not stop him from his task. It does not stop him from doing what he came to do. It does not stop him from pursuing after salvation for his people. It does not stop him from doing what he's been called to do and sent to do by God. He still goes to the cross. He still dies in their place. And so anyone who believes in his name, they shall become children of God. Born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Again, Laid out here. If you want to understand the prologue, all you got to do is turn to John chapter 3, where this idea of the new birth is described. What does it mean to be born of God? Born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. What does it mean to be a child of God? Aren't all of us children of God? John makes it clear we're not. I quote that a good bit because I think it's one of the great misunderstandings of our time. One of the great misunderstandings of our time is to assume that the Imago Dei, the image of God with us, makes us children of God. While all of us bear the image of God, that image has been broken because of sin and needs to be restored. While it's there and gives us dignity, right, we all have that, that does not qualify us to be into the family of God. So this ultimate idea that many people have that we're all God's children is not a biblical understanding. For Jesus looks at the Jews who should have been God's children, right? 
He looks at the very ones who were children of Abraham, and he says what? You are of your father the devil in John 8, 44. That the only way we can become children of God is to be born into the family, not through flesh or blood, but through the spirit that brings life. And then we're adopted in. John's gospel lays that out. And in verse 14, verse 14, he says, and the word, going back to verse 1, this word who is eternal, who has all power, who all the witnesses are bearing toward, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is important, and I'll close with this. This is important for us to understand because what John is doing here as he's writing this is he is giving a parallel, a parallel from John chapter 1, 14 through 18, really, and we'll look at that, all the way back to Exodus 33. All the way back to Exodus 33. This one who this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. That word dwelt, y'all know where that word comes from? Same word as tabernacle. And so in Exodus 33, what happens? Y'all remember? The Lord has come down onto Mount Sinai. The, the, the tablets have been received. The law is this. The Lord wants to be with his people. Understand in scripture, God saved us to be with us. He didn't save us to let us go and just say, hey, y'all are free, go do it. He saved us because he wants to dwell with us. That's what makes the law important there because if we're going to dwell with God, we've got to be following after him. We've got to be made holy for he is holy. And so he saved us to dwell with us. And so in that same sense, what happens in Exodus is he says, here's how I'm going to dwell with you. You're going to build me a tent. And you're going to put that tent in the middle of your camp. And as you move through the wilderness, that tent will be in the middle, right? We call that tent the tabernacle. And God will dwell there. And in that, you have, you, have, you know, you put the table in there. You put the bread in there every day. You put the, the, um, the menorah, the lampstand in there. Why? Because that's where I live, God says. You take the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of God, right? And you put that in there. Why? Because my throne's in heaven and my feet touch the ground on earth right here on this. And why is that Ark of the Covenant holy? Because you can't put your hands on it because that's where God dwells and puts his feet on, right? So you can't make that unholy. That's in the tabernacle. And God says, while you're marching through, all you've got to do, if you ever want to wonder if I'm with you, all you ever have to do is look out of your little tent that you have over to my tent. And at my tent, there'll be a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That's me dwelling with you. I'm there. You don't have to wonder if, if somebody else is here. You don't have to wonder if I'm gone. You can look out and you can know I am with you at all times. That's Exodus 33. And what we see there is that in Exodus 33, we see that issue going on. We see God dwelling with his people. And what happens here is John takes that image and to say, guess what's happening when Christ came? God again is dwelling with his people. Jesus is God come to be with us, to tabernacle amongst us, to be there in the presence with us. He has come for us. He's dwelling with his people, and we have seen his glory. Do y'all remember what happened when Moses saw the glory of the Lord? In fact, Moses only saw literally the hind parts. Y'all know what I'm saying? 
He says he can only see the edges, the fringes, the hind parts of God's glory. And do y'all remember? This is what Paul starts writing about in, in 1 Corinthians 3. Y'all remember what happened when Moses saw the hind parts? His face glowed. People were scared of him. They had to put a, a, a basket over his face whenever he just simply saw those the, uh, the hind parts of God's glory. So in 2 Corinthians 3, listen to what Paul says. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for this day, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. The only way you can understand all of this is what John is telling us, is Jesus has come to make it known. And Paul says that's exactly what happened. They don't see Christ as the one who's come to make it known. They don't understand it. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, when we look upon Christ, we aren't seeing the hind parts of God's glory. We are seeing the full display of His glory. And that's what John says. When he says, no one has ever seen God. In fact, Exodus 24 says you can't see God and live. No one has ever seen God. The only God, which is Christ, who is the Father's, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, if you want to know the glory of God, you look at Christ. You look to him. He's the one. He is the great I am, just as the Lord is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says in John's gospel several times. He is the one that's done it. And so everything we know about the Lord, we can find that in Christ. And what you find in Christ is who God is. And who God is is who Christ is. And so that argument that always goes on, that, that Jesus changes things, right? He comes in the New Testament, he's about love and care and that kind of stuff. That's nonsense. They're the same. They've always been there. They've always are co-eternal. They're always in the same essence. They've been there. This is who God is when you see Christ. This is who Christ is when you see God. You can see both of these things as the Father and the Son come together in this way. This one has made him known. The full glory of God's grace, the full glory of his truth, all of this has been found in Christ Jesus. So, my point is, as we look to John 13, imagine understanding that. This is who Christ is. All the I am statements, all the signs, all the power, all of that eternality, that essence of God. He's the son of God. All of that is wrapped up in the one who will stoop his knee to his disciples, take up a pot and a rag and wash their feet. All of that is wrapped up in the one that say, just as you saw that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night that represents the presence of God, I have come. And guess what's coming after me? The Spirit of God. You don't have to look outside your tent anymore to see if I'm present. God's presence will be in you from now on. He'll be in you. The great comforter is coming for you. Even greater than you can ever possibly imagine. John 14. 
Not only that, the life that you long for is found in this one who has come, the vine who will sustain you and you abide in him and you'll have it. And the one who is the king of the universe, the king of glory, that one is praying for you. He's praying for you, interceding on your behalf in John chapter 17. You see, oftentimes we lose or miss the gravity of those moments because we diminish who this is that's doing it for us. When we talk about Jesus just being our homeboy or he's just this good friend, if we just plant ourselves on that, we lose the gravity of the Son of God, the glory of the Father, all of that together, the eternal God, Jesus Christ himself, has come to serve us, not be served, and give his life for us. At the end, there's this passage in John 14. Or I think it's Nathaniel, I think, maybe Philip, one of those. They look at Jesus and they say, if we could just see the Father, if you could just show us God, the Father, then, then that would be enough. And you could almost feel, I mean, it's the night he's going to be betrayed, the next day, you could almost feel Jesus just saying, brother, that's me. Jesus is enough. We don't need another sign. We don't need another display that display is going to be seen. And you wrap that up with those Greeks that come to see Jesus right there on that last night. The Greeks come up and say, we, sh uh, we want to see Jesus, sir. And Jesus gives this long answer. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll see him. In fact, it, it, pretty clearly he says, no, I don't want to see him. But he gives this long answer and he says, they'll see me soon enough. They'll see me hanging on a cross. They'll see me dying there. And then they'll see me raised again. That's what they need to see. Tell them to look for that. That's what John's gospel is. Calling us to say, this one that came for us is the very, very God himself. The glory in full display. And his glory is in full display when he goes to a cross and dies and is raised again. Do you believe this? Jesus is the Christ. Believe in his name. So as we look to those chapters, keep that in our mind, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good for us. We thank you for the opportunity to be together on this Wednesday morning. God, what a blessing. And we ask, God, that you would take the rest of our day and use it for your glory. And not only today, but every day. May our lives be used by you for your glory and your name. Thank you for all of these things. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see you Sunday.